0: Welcome to the Auditorium,
1: a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello, and welcome to the Auditorium podcast. With me, your host, Dr. Bramwell, and my co-host,
2: David Malfield.
1: And do you know who we've got on for today's episode?
2: It's Sarah Angliss talking about birds.
1: Ah, yeah, I know this one. Yeah, it's it's I think it's called Bird Fanciers Delight. There's, there's something different about you, Dave.
2: What are you talking about?
1: It's your voice.
2: My voice?
1: Yeah, you sound, well, like a little girl.
2: Oh, yes, an old actor's trick.
1: Right, right. How are you doing that?
2: It's very simple, really. You just hold your throat like this. Here? Yeah, bit further up.
1: Uh, here?
2: No, (coughs) bit further than that.
1: Uh, here?
2: That's it. Then really press in. (coughs) Wow, I sound like a little girl. Hey, it's cool, isn't it? It's bloody great. How long does this last for? Oh, uh, uh, yes. Uh, I'm afraid it sort of lasts for about a day. A day? Yes, yeah, sorry. But I gotta go and, and give a speech in a funeral in an hour's time. ha, <laughs> that should be humorous. Oh, for fudge's sake. Don't you swear at me. I'll say what a bloomin' world will like. Well, that's it, I'm leaving. You're a big fat fool. <laughs> right, well, uh, okay. I think it's time to start the podcast. Here's Sarah Anglis. With bird fancier's delight. You're a bird fancier. <laughs> Shut up, Dave. The
3: Edison phonograph, the first machine that could record and playback sound, presented by Edison in 1877. And actually, although he didn't really have it in mind, music very swiftly became the killer app for sound recording, which slightly annoyed him, interestingly. That's another story. But there were other uses, of course, which was to record your voice. And that was very easy to do with a phonograph. And it was a real thing, the sort of wannabe recording your singing voice or just recording a message home or dictation, all those things. But it could also be used to record wonderful sounds and voices from around the world. These are recordings that have ended up in the Smithsonian and have been ripped off royally. I shouldn't say ripped off, used prolifically by people like Moby and they're all in the Smithsonian archive, and they are things of wonder, and thank goodness that they were recorded while these people were still here. So I'm very interested in these sorts of sonic curiosities, strange voices and so on, and I'd actually like to play one of my favourites now. I'm actually going to play you something now, and I want you to have a listen to it. Uh, it's a bit old, it's a bit r- but I want you to have a listen, and then tell me, who is this? Right, are you ready? So listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. (laughs) It's actually Hoover, the talking seal. Yes. Now, the history of Hoover is very interesting. Um, A few years back, He was uh, abandoned, very sad, sad beginning. This is a a chirpy story though, this one, I have to say, this whole show. Uh, He was abandoned on a beach in New Jersey and he would have died, but a a lovely couple in New Jersey found him and they put him in their swimming, in their um, bathtub and they fed him fish and he hoovered them up and they called him Hoover for that reason. And then he grew out of the bathtub and they put him in their pool. And when he grew out of the swimming pool, they gave him to the zoo. You'd think that would be the end of the story, but something interesting happened. He matured, and when he reached maturity, he started to make this sound that sounded incredibly like them. And what it seems to have happened is, isolated from his own kind, he was attracted to the voices of the humans that were nurturing him, And what you actually, if you listen carefully, it seems that he might have been mimicking what they were saying. They were going, hoover, hoover, hoover up the fish. And I actually think you can hear the New Jersey accent if you listen. So it's a wonderful example of animal imitation. And a very clever animal. I read a lot of old magic books. I'm very, very attracted to sort of clever animals over time. Like the learned pig. (laughs) and the horse magician, not to be confused with the magical horse, and Jacko the talking fish, who was a big deal in Piccadilly. And then, of course, there was Clever Hands in about 1907, a horse with the mathematical abilities of a 14-year-old child, and um, Lady Wonder, the telepathic horse. From the 1950s who could move her horsey snout to spell out things like where a body was buried and who was going to win the derby and where the oil was now i can smell your skepticism at this point yes it's all a little bit flaky some of this stuff isn't it it's sort of the stuff of the sort of snake oil salesman and such like and of course in more recent times animals have been put through more scientific scrutiny clever hands you'd ask him to divide or multiply and he'd tap out the answer with his little horsey hooves. And some people came in to investigate in 1907 and they blew the gaff on clever hands. He wasn't that clever. Surprise, surprise, the clever person in the room was his trainer, or his owner, I should say, Wilhelm von Osten. And whether it was done by design or just, how to describe it, subconsciously, of course, it doesn't take a brain scientist to work this out. Although actually it did. <laughs> uh, Wilhelm von Osten kind of knew the answer and he couldn't help letting on to the horse. And who knows how he was doing it. He might have just slightly inflected his, you know, he might have slightly changed his expression when the horse got to the right answer. It could have been simply about the way he relaxed his shoulders. But this is whole, was this real thing that the horse was reading the cues from the human And so everybody realised that this was nothing more than self-delusion or a parlour trick. And this is very important, what I'm going to talk to you about sound recording, weirdly enough, because this was a very important moment in animal intelligence studies where they realised, you know, you've got to get the humans out of the loop because humans have a terrible habit of passing on valuable information to animals and getting in the loop, and it's very complicated. So now, whenever anybody tries to do any animal experiments and you start to get the human doing something, oh, clever hands, you know, got to be careful and all this. And this is relevant because it's something that interests me very much indeed, which is one of the clever animals that you find in these old magic books. And it's these, the curious birds. Now, here's some wonderful curious birds from Botany Bay. And they seem to be doing magic tricks and such like. But there are some other curious birds that are very, very close to my heart. And they're in this painting from the 18th century. This is by Jean-Baptiste de Chardin. And it's called... A woman at her amusements, and in it we see this beautifully dressed woman and she's at a spinet or a virgin, or actually no she's not even there she's just sitting in her chair by her side is a very beautiful bird cage, and there seems to be there seems to be a canary in there or, or a little yellow bird of some kind and she's looking very intently at this bird, and on her lap she has a little tiny box that's it's called a serenade And in the box is actually a serenet. It's a little tiny pin barrel organ. It's a little organ that uh, as you sort of turn a handle, the pins play different tunes in little pipes. And the pipes are really tiny. they're that the register of birds, like that. It could play fashionable tunes of the 18th century, gavottes and minuets and things like that. And this is the crucial thing when we look at this Chardin painting. This woman is looking very intently at that clever little bird in there, because she's teaching the bird the songs. And this is what happened right through the 18th century and much of the 19th century. When you wanted music in the home, you taught a bird to sing it. And this was so widespread that books and treaties were published on how to do them. And there were sort of training manuals and things like that that told you how to look after the birds. And there are these wonderful little books that were published. So instead of, if you imagine, we had people round. You would teach your bird in advance to sing a fashionable tune of the time. This would be like the early, 19, uh, sorry, early 1800s. When you had people round, you'd take the cover off the bird and it would sing the song. And that is how you had automatic music in the home before... The phonograph before the gramophone, before the iPod. And instead of going to your whatever it was, Spotify, to get your favourite tune, you'd buy one of these books, The Bird Fancier's Delights. Now, these books were full of choice melodies, fashionable tunes, written in the pitches that were said to be preferred by the birds. And I've got a book of The Bird Fancier's Delights here. And you know, there were tunes for the bullfinch and the East India nightingale, and the throstle, and all of that. And you'd kind of buy a bird. It had to be a male bird, because it was the male birds that were the songsters. And then um, every day, you'd teach it these little tunes. You didn't just sort of teach it willy-nilly. It was all very scientific. And this is, this is where my sort of interest in it comes from an animal intelligence point of view. Because what they were doing was they were replicating some of what happens in nature when birds long songs. So, for example... This is what they said in these treaties, these bird fancies delight treaties. And this actually is from a book called Bickers and Bush, I think, which is about 1860. So, you know, this is really going on a long time. How you teach your blackbird, for example. The blackbird will learn any easy tune that's played to him on a flute or other wind instrument. Give him a moderate breakfast or supper. And then, before you begin the lesson, hang in his sight a lively worm. This is to be a reward for good behaviour. Then slowly and distinctly play a few bars of the air you wish the bird to learn. He will pay great attention while you're playing and when he learns the tune, instantly give him the worm, caressing him and making a great fuss. In a few days, he will understand all about the worm and do his best to earn it. And. It's very interesting because there's lots of other detail. For instance, the fact that you should do it over a certain point in the year and you should always lift the cover up before you do it. And there are some... Some uh, books that talk about this thing called stopping the bird when you would cut back on its food and its water to sort of extend what it thinks is the um, season that it should be learning. And everything that you read about this seems to be about obviously inducements, but also about controlling the light dose that the bird gets and the moment that light appears. And, And this is what birds do. Birds sing at dawn and they come into their song at a certain point in the year, and one of the ideas at the moment is that they use the dose of light that they get across the year, you know, as, as we come into spring and summer, to know when to start learning, and when to come into song and when to stop, because you want to have you want to be sort of out there because you sing to attract your mate, and you want to be attracting your mate at the right point in spring and early summer, and you don't want to be getting involved with mates, you know, when you've had too much sunlight, because then you're going to be having your chicks in the winter and it's not going to be very good for the chicks. So it's fascinating. It's like empirically they'd worked out all this stuff that we're just starting to understand now about birds. Because it's very interesting, is that Birds like humans have this very interesting thing, neurogenesis, where we actually grow brain cells. We grow brain as we come into our speech in our case and our song in the case of the birds. So it's fascinating. And this is this is very, very early on that this was going on. Now, I should, I should give you an idea of what these songs are like. You'd play them on a, on a flageolet or a little sopranino. So it sort of sounded, sort of right register for a bird. And, and I'll play you one. I'm going to have to put the mic down to do this. Mm-mm-mm. and they're weird they're sort of so strange hybrid between what you imagine would be fashionable 18th century minuets and things and what you imagine a sort of stereotype bird song would sound like so this is a tune for the East, night- East India Nightingale Nightingales are very very prized as singers but they're very difficult to look after because you had to give them live bait but here goes And what bird wouldn't want to learn that? Anyway, um, interesting. I had the joy of being in at dawn for the dawn chorus in Kaida Forest with Jeff Sample, who is a brilliant bird song recordist. Bird song recordist, and uh, I played those during the dawn chorus, and he just laughed at me, and he said they don't sound anything like the birds in question. So that was a bit of an eye opener. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there's been a certain amount of skepticism. About where the birds actually learnt this, learnt these tunes. But um, if you look at the the research, blows it out of the water. First of all, the fact that there were all these treaties written on how to train these birds, and this was incredibly popular. Plus the fact that there are accounts of birds that were particularly good singers going particularly high amounts of uh, money. And there are even some very very early recordings where uh, canaries, singing canaries, have been somehow magic, you know, miraculously uh, recorded and fact, Alex Krakowski uh, the sound recorder is, is working with canaries now and te- trying to teach them song and trying to record them using early phonographic techniques now here's a, here, here's a beautiful example of a trained bird kind of given the game away here I should have said this was a human but actually this is a bird you're about to hear that was trained by a German wood chopper so this is a bird not a human interesting about it is how basic that is if you ever slow down bird song that's so dull compared to slow down bird song that must be the most boring music they've ever been asked to learn (laughs) and it's all certain arrogance in making a corruption of their music then getting a bit arsy with them when they don't learn it you know (laughs) anyway um i think there's a certain amount of sadness wrapped up in the whole thing of course because in order to In order to teach a bird to sing, you need to isolate it from its own kind because it will always reflexively learn the music of its own kind. And a bit like Hoover, Hoover learned something like human speech, you know, learned to mimic human speech uh, because that's all he had around him. And in fact, there's this really poignant thing in one of the training manuals. I think this is from Bickers and Bush as well, which I find really sad. If you want to teach a thrush to pipe... You must begin, as soon as he is fledged, taking care that even during the first few weeks of his life, he is not allowed to hear the voice of one of his own species. If he at once acquires this natural note, you will find considerable difficulty in making him discard it for the sake of your artificial music. So it's really, really sad. And people did kind of wake up to the cruelty of it, conveniently they woke up to the cruelty of it conveniently once they had an alternative which was the phonograph and then lots of middle class uh, women in london and the like were writing these sort of pamphlets called the the captured the plaintive cry of the captured birth they suddenly realized there was something a bit mean about it but nevertheless we know it went on there's lots of evidence that it went on and the most interesting evidence of all is in this word record which is you know completely bound up with sound technology record ray again cordy from the heart it means again from the heart and if you look at the early history of the word record it's all about birds and bird luring because a bird was said to record when it had come into its song when it knew how to recite its song from a heart and this instrument is the recorder And it seems to be about copying birdsong or luring birds. This is all contentious, but I think it's about a a luring instrument, you know, that you would use to to play bird-like song. Now, just to end, I have to say that there is a bit of a sort of postscript to all of this, which is that when sound recording came along, obviously the rest is history, but the but the interest in sort of t- teaching birds and using birdsong musically didn't disappear altogether. There's all the history of people like composers like Messian, but then there who who copied birdsong in their music. Something that had been going on for centuries. But there was this other sort of strange cult. Uh, people like Virginia Belmont, who had a whole uh, what be the word menagerie or, or aviary of uh, talking and singing birds, and she used to exhibit them at Radio City Hall. And then in the north of England, particularly, (laughs) these aren't songbirds, but they're of great interest, uh, budgies, budgie training was a massive thing in the 50s and 60s. This is the champion budgie from about uh, about 1952, I think. Anyway, this is Sparky, who's now, um, you can see him in the Hancock Museum in, he's stuffed. You can see him (laughs) in this Hancock Museum in uh, Newcastle. i think you could speak about 500 words and phrases uh, would you like to hear a little bit of sparky yes. yeah I, I
1: love sparky hello everyone this is philip marsden the tv badgy man and i have brought a very special friend of mine to say hello
2: good morning good morning now
1: now sparky don't rush it just a nice little hello to start with eh hello that's the idea now what about introducing yourself to the people properly properly from the Yes, from the beginning, properly. My
2: baby, Spocky Williams. Patty fog
1: rattle 1st time. Where was that again?
0: Petty-fog-rattle-gar, 1st
1: time. Oh, yes. That's Newcastle, isn't it? You're a Geordie.
2: Mama's precious pet. Mama's little treasure. Mama's beautiful little
1: dice. <laughs> my word, you are a mama's darling, aren't you? I
2: love my mama. I can see that. I love my daddy. Well, and quite right, too. What lovely cup
1: of tea. No, no, you can't have a cup of tea yet. You've got to earn it.
3: There we are. You can't have a cup of tea yet. Oh, and that's Matty. Oh, he's beautiful. And that's Matty, his trainer. And of course, can you believe it? Some people are suggesting that it was an act of ventriloquism. And um, so I, I'm hoping, we haven't got around to it yet, but Sophie Scott, as a neuroscientist and acoustician, and uh, we want to work together and exonerate Sparky because we can actually look at the, um, we can look at the phonemes in their vowels and kind of from that sort of backwards engineer, the shape of the vocal track that was making it and we're hoping to show that there is none of Matty in Sparky because I think I think it's all Sparky that's what I like to think anyway but a post-to-post script cut a long story short I, I started working with this chap called uh, Moonwiring Club or Ian Hodgson and he was in the middle of working on an album which I didn't know at the time which is all about birdsong I sort of improvised the sounds recorder sounds in the style of Bird Fantasy's Delight and then he in his way chopped them up in his samplers and things and created some bits of the album. I thought, so this is a corrupted sample of Birdsong which I'm then playing on a recorder and then recording and then he's corrupting in his recorder and then he's playing it back to me. Just a tiny snippet I hope it's here
2: Mm.
3: It is called Obsidian Mm. Coaxer and it was weird because then I thought well oh, I know what I'll do I'll write down what he's done and then see if I can play that back and develop that and then we can sort of keep going until we sort of fall over and uh, then I found it really really hard to write it down and, and at that moment I had this sort of epiphany about what we we're putting the birds through when we were trying to sort of ask them to perform corruptions of, of what they were playing. And, and, and it gave me tremendous, tremendous respect for them. And I realised that, yes, we really do need to stop getting these birds to perform party tricks for us and, and just start listening to the birds. And that's um, what I want you to do at the end here with some beautiful, beautiful words from Virginia Belmont, which I, I, I can't think of a more lovely way to end the evening. I hope that you have enjoyed this recording and that these tiny feathered friends have left a song in your heart. You have heard birds from all parts of the world in song and in expression, all living in accord and in harmony. We can learn so much from birds and animals. The American eagle represents strength and freedom while the gentle dove is a symbol of peace and love. Let us hope that man too will find a way of living with one another in peace. Then in truth, the lion shall lie down with the lamb. May happiness and contentment be with you always. My pets send love to your pets, and I send my love to you.
1: Sarah Anglis there with bird fanciers' delight. A
0: charming, charming lecture, and of course a wonderful. If if ever you get the chance to see her performing her most unusual music live, I recommend it. Look out for her; she's a unique
1: performer. That's right. She combines robotics. With uh, theremin playing, storytelling. She has a robotic crow called Edgar Allan Crow. (laughs) She's got a baby It's so sinister. She's got a sort of chimes machine that's
0: uh, semi-automatic that's got a baby's arm, like a dismembered, not an actual baby, obviously a a baby dull arm that sort of moves it
1: round. It's it's such a disturbing (laughs) device. And, and Hugo, the, the severed head of a ventriloquist uh, doll, as well, who yeah. addresses the audience sometimes <laughs> in his acerbic way. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. She is what she's she's one off. She's a special one. But no, that's good. Yeah, that, and that neatly segues into the biscuit you brought in for us today. Does it? No, but <laughs> let's keep rolling. Here we have, uh, obviously, listeners, you can't see this at home, but
0: it's a uh, it's a hobnob. You'll be aware of the hobnob. Early 80s, I believe, the hobnob. Oh, I could be wrong on that. might be late 80s. If you want to correct me, please feel free. I'll ignore you. But it was the first of the designer biscuits, wasn't it? It was like designer drugs. This was the first biscuit that you were made aware of. A new biscuit was on the block. Exactly. And I remember yeah. thinking That's some- that something shifted. Because for many there years there was an
1: excitement in the air when, when the hobnob first
0: and then they put chocolate out. on the top, which made it like crack. Basically, I yeah. mean, you can do a packet of these without moving. And of course, although they are a, a, a sort of Johnny come lately to the biscuit world, they are based in a highly traditional. Um, idea. There's a, an excellent book by Cyril Bonfiglioli called All the Tea in China, which is um, about a, a young rapscallion joining a, a clipper off to China to try and run the opium for the opium trade and make his fortune. And in it, they, they talk about the um, the, ho- the hob, which was permanently on. The, the fire was always kept in on, on, a, on a clipper on a, uh, in the kitchen, in the galley. And that um, <clears throat> the chef, if there are any bits left over he would he would sort of wrap them up in little parcels of of dough or pastry and and, and fry them on the hob and and uh, people would hang about and get snacks when they could based on that so he'd make little hobnobs that's where nice. the the hobnob comes from nice well obviously this, this, this is not they weren't served that, and nothing would ever get done. You'd just sit around with cups of tea, mashing a whole pack of those, wouldn't you? They are an absolute delight to dunk into a cup of tea. But they're the gateway biscuit into the postmodern biscuit crisis that we're in at the moment, where where you have biscuit bars and biscuits that are cakes, and there's all sorts of ungodly things out there now, which we're never going to cover. We're always going to be on the purer side of biscuits. Absolutely, this is the furthest we'll go. This is the furthest. We we'll, promise you, listener, there we'll go no further than hobnobs. Absolutely, um, we are biscuit purists. Yeah, exactly. You know, there won't be. I mean, I'm not. Going even as
1: far as a boaster, which was the next move. I don't know what that is. Never heard of them. You've never had a boaster? Well, I, I, I might have. I, I blank them out. I, I, I walk past them. I, 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 I see these words in the in the in the supermarket, but but I'm I'm straight there with the tonics. Booster, booster, bad juju,
0: because they are amazing, uh, but they're wrong, because you know they're like a Muesli bar mixed with. What so it's done. like it's like modern day skunk compared to seventies. Yeah, exactly, weed, isn't it? exactly. Right, yeah, right. there you go. So anyway, uh, gentlemen, that's all we know about the hobnob. If anyone else knows anything more about the hobnob, I mean, of course. We do talk for quite a long time about biscuits, but we have a nagging feeling that maybe we don't do enough. So if you want to, you know, write in with your biscuit-based contributions or facts... Or
1: suggestions as to which biscuits to cover that true. we haven't covered yet. Absolutely, yeah. I was thinking we'd finish off with a competition. Yes. And relate it back to... To what this podcast was about, which was about um, animals impersonating, particularly birds impersonating people, and people um, sometimes impersonating animals. So, why? Uh, I think I think it would be a really nice competition. We'll give a big, we'll do a big prize for this one. This okay? is going we'll to we'll be an unbelievable prize. We're going to do a fanta- We're not going to say what it is, but it's yeah. going to be. I can't super- believe we're actually giving this prize. So, the competition, uh, and this hmm. episode's competition is: we would like you to tell us what animal you or bird you can impersonate. We don't want to hear it, obviously. We just want to know what it is, so write to us and tell us what the creature is that you can impersonate and we want you to give yourself marks out of 10. And whoever gets the highest mark for, for the creature that they could impersonate and you don't have to you don't have to, to prove it to us no they'll taking no, taking your word on no this no adjudication on that then we will give this fantastic prize here and to, th- to we'll, And we'll have a short list that we will read out live on air won't we we'll read yeah, out yeah 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 and and the address as always is Auditorium podcast. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got a, a bit of um, bit of biscuit in my throat there, and still. <clears throat> ah, I've got a cure for that because aren't you going to parents' evening or something? I, I have got parents' evening yeah, next year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So
0: listen, what you need to do is pull hard on your earlobes, like really hard. Uh, oh, that <sighs> really hard. Harder. Ow. Really hard. Yeah. Okay. Whoa, now whoa. punch I'll... yourself in the knackers. What? Punch yourself in the knackers. I'm not doing that. Punch yourself in the knackers. You promise me it it will work out.
1: Ow. Ow!
0: And now, talk. Ah, oh, yeah. What'd you make us punch me selling the Nakas for? See? Look, you're a Geordie now. You've turned us into a Geordie. I've got parents even in the gun, tea. Ah, well, you see, the Geordie accent is regarded nationally as the most trustworthy accent, so they're going to love you. How do we in shite, man? The Auditorium is presented by Dr David Bramwell and Mr David Mountfield. Mr Manfield was played by Phoebe Parrott and Dr Bramwell was played by Lola Dan. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from The Auditorium are featured in Ernest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like The Auditorium, then please leave a review for
2: us on iTunes.